Good evening and welcome to ISGAP, series at the Harvard Faculty Club, the Institute for the Study of global anti-Semitism and policy is devoted to promote understanding of contemporary anti-Semitism. My name is Vivaldi Jean-Marie, and I am this evening's speaker and moderator of the Harvard and Columbia ISGAP series. I encourage you to visit the ISGAP website to find out more about, <coughs> excuse me, other seminar series that are taking place at the Sorbonne, uh, McGill University, and the National University in Kiev. So um, the title of my talk is Memory, the Jewish Intellectual and Cartesian Cogito in Jean Améry's At the Mind's Limits. So I will present for about 45 minutes or less, and then um, we will then engage in a Q&A. So <clears throat> the thesis of my paper is that for Jean Méry, Auschwitz reads the intellect of its Western ideals and reduces it to a playful, logical framework. And as such, it is reminiscent of the Cartesian cogito. To argue my thesis, first, I discuss the role of memory in Amory's account in um, At the Mind's Limits. Secondly, Amory's account of the experience of the Jewish intellectual in Auschwitz. Thirdly, the resemblance of Amory's view of the intellect to René Descartes' cogito in his meditations. So, in the preface, to the 1977's reissue of his classic text, At the Mind's Limits, Améry deliberately refrains from editing his first-hand account of torture and genocide in Auschwitz. His initial justification for such abstention is to avoid succumbing to what he calls a journalistic tribute to actuality. Amory wishes to steer clear of the journalistic tendency to embellish accounts and adjust them to the expectations of readers. However, this is not the only incentive of Amory's refusal to edit the 1977's edition. When pressed, it becomes apparent that Amory's incentive is driven by his wish to live the description of Auschwitz atrocities unaltered by time. Put differently, Amery wants every subsequent generation to encounter Auschwitz atrocious events in their starkness. In doing so, Amery commits Auschwitz to temporal stillness. The horrors of Auschwitz ought to remain still and unembellished by time. As such, it is suspended as a fixed present in the European timeline. Amory remains steadfast in his conviction, I quote, I am unwilling to retract anything I've said here and have but little to add to it, end of quote. This statement suggests 
Amiri strived to engrace his narrative of Ashra's atrocities as a memorial on the temporal axis. In the preface of At the Mind's Limits, Amiri is demanding that Ashra's horrors be recollected according to a distinctive mnemonic process by European collective memory. This mnemonic process ought to spare his account of temporal irrelevance, which usually distorts historical events as time moves on. Moreover, Amer's deliberate refusal to edit the 1977's reissue is thickened by skepticism vis-a-vis -vis reconciling Auschwitz horrors with the German Bildung. Amery is simultaneously baffled and skeptical at the prospect of such reconciliation. The occurrence of the Holocaust is logically incoherent with Germany's reputation as a refined nation with a long intellectual tradition and enormous intellectual capital. In raising this quandary, Amery positions himself in the European Jewish intelligence's discourse on the Holocaust as an uncanny event, given its lack of rational antecedents among a nation which prides itself as a champion of reason and humane sensibility. I quote Amery, this evil really is singular and irreducible in its total inner logic and its accursed rationality. For, for this reason, all of us are still faced with a dark riddle, end of quote. This claim expresses surreptitiously that the impossibility of framing the atrocities of the Holocaust within the German Bildung bears both intellectual and existential stakes for Améry. It also justifies Améry's decision for the narrative to remain unaltered in order to kindle the interest of successive generations. As the account unfolds, Amiri claims vehemently that, I quote, I don't want to erect a monument to them, for to be a victim alone is not an honor. I only wanted to describe their condition, which is unchangeable, end of quote. The emphasis upon describing the unchangeable compels the reader to wonder what is praiseworthy about the unchangeableness of the conditions of the victims of the Holocaust. <coughs> Why is Amiri so keen on preserving his original transcripts of the events of Auschwitz? To ponder a tentative answer to these questions requires dwelling on Amiri's rationale for rejecting any conceptual reconciliation of Auschwitz and the German Bildung. Amiri asserts fervently, I quote, I was there. Let no young political scientist, no matter how clever he is, tell me his conceptually untenable stories. To someone who was an eyewitness, they appear utterly stupid." End of quote. Such stern rejection suggests that in his mind, conceptual accounts of the Holocaust are unsuitable because first-hand testimonies ought to assume primacy in coming to grasp with the horrors that took place in Auschwitz. If pressed further, it becomes apparent that for Améry, given the inextricability of first-hand experience and memory, the latter should be the primary medium instead of concepts to think about the Holocaust. 
Amery's deliberate refusal to alter the manuscript and his skepticism about the possibility of conceptual reconciliation of the Holocaust with, German, with the German Bildung is driven by his commitment to memory as the suitable faculty to address the Holocaust. If indeed first-hand account ought to assume primacy over conceptual renditions, then what is at stake in Amery's surreptitious assertion of memory as the suitable faculty? Amery's answer to this question has a threefold implication. Amery makes the following statement, I quote, but it must not be done by hollow, thoughtless, utterly false conciliatoriness, which already now is accelerating the time process. On the contrary, since it is a moral chasm, let it for now remain wide open. This too is the reason for the new edition of my book." End of quote. This claim provides Amery's take on the Holocaust as a moral fiasco, which is opaque to conceptual understanding. Amery's view of the Holocaust sheds light on his denial of academic disciplines to grasp its, um, its genealogy. The second implication of Amery's take is that it posits, it establishes continuity between memory and the ethical disaster which is at the core of the Holocaust. Unlike the conceptual means, memory is best fit to dwell on the ethical dimension of the Holocaust. Amery thus displaces the conceptual faculties and posits memory as the existential medium that each generation must rely on to contemplate the horrors of the Holocaust. The third implication of Amery's assertion of memory and first-hand experience is that they preserve the vividness and intensity of the genocide that happened in Auschwitz. The ultimate virtue of deploying memory as the means to grapple with Auschwitz is that as it displaces the academic disciplines, it simultaneously expands the boundaries of the European, of the European Enlightenment. For Amery, the occurrence of the Holocaust, which at first seems inconsistent with the humane ideals of the European Enlightenment, may only be understood unless a new medium is formulated to grasp genealogy. Accordingly, it seems that the European Enlightenment can be reconciled with the Holocaust by broadening its rational limits. Amery expresses this ideal bluntly in stating that, I quote, only when we fulfill the law of enlightenment and at the same time transcend it do we reach intellectual realms in which ratio does not lead to shallow rationalism. This is why, now as well as earlier, I always proceed from the concrete event, but never become lost in it. Rather, I always take it as an occasion for reflections that extend beyond reasoning." End of quote. First-hand narratives of the horrors of the Holocaust baffled European rationality. Amory wants the concrete events of the Holocaust to unsettle European rationality and compel it to acknowledge its limits. This fact elicited the dual facet of Amory's at the mind's limits, which is intended to critique Western rationality and bring its readership to postulate a new discursive space beyond 
the academic boundaries to contemplate the Holocaust. Another immediate byproduct of Amir's approach is to herald the foreboding possibility of a recurrence of the Holocaust. Citing a rally by Palestinians in an unspecified German city, which proclaimed death to the Jewish people as its chant, Amiri states that, I quote, we are used to that. We had the chance to observe how the word became flesh and how this incarnated word finally led to heaps of cadavers. Once again, people are playing with the fire that dug a grave in the air for so many. I sound the fire alarm, end of quote. First-hand narratives of the horrors at Auschwitz are thus committed to thwarting, avoiding the repetition of genocide of the Jewish people. Memory of the Holocaust is meant to inform Europe that the Holocaust remains engraved in the experience of Jewish communities. Incessant recollection critiques European rationality while reminding it of its limits. It stands as a perpetual alarm to expose the latent anti-Semitism of anti-Zionism. Moreover, at the mind's limits is relevant to contemporary attempt to understand anti-Semitism because Amery deliberately asserts its project as sounding the bell to raise awareness of the possibility of a repetition of Auschwitz that is latent in overt anti-Semitic claims such as those in the rally in the German city that he refers to, responding to the sounding bell in At the Mind's Limits prevents the horrific implications of recent anti-Semitic rallies in France from being harbingers of another Jewish genocide. I am now moving on to the plight of the intellectual in Auschwitz. Auschwitz atrocity brings the intellectual proclivity of Jewish inmates to a suspension. Using his own experiences as a Jewish intellectual, Jean Améry asserts that when confronted with the horrors of Auschwitz, Jewish intellectuals are stripped of their liberal, aesthetic, and theoretical bents. Auschwitz reduces the Jewish intellectual to a singular I. Améry puts it in the following statement, I quote, we will take such an intellectual then, a man who can recite great poetry by the stanza, who knows the famous paintings of the Renaissance as well, as well as those of surrealism, who is familiar with the history of philosophy and of music and place him in a borderline situation where he has to confirm the reality and effectiveness of his intellect or to declare its impotence. Therewith, naturally, I present myself in a double capacity as a Jew and as a member of the Belgian resistance movement. Besides, in Buchenwald, Bergen-Belsen, and still other concentration camps, I also spent a year in Auschwitz, more exactly in the auxiliary camp Auschwitz in Monowitz. For that reason, the little word I will have to appear here more often than I like. Namely, wherever I cannot take for granted that others have shared my personal experience." End of quote. Amory's emphasis on his singularity as an intellectual and first-person narrator is reminiscent of the juncture in Descartes' meditations, 
when confronted with the overwhelming evil genius, the ego is bare. The moment when the ego realizes that in the face of the evil genius, its only certainty is the famous I think. Similarly, Amiri is articulating the experience of the Jewish intellectual who is stripped to her bare subjectivity when dealing with the horrors of Auschwitz. Like Descartes' meditations, at the mind's limits unfolds from the perspective of an I think, which reinforces the singular basis of Amiri's project. On the basis of such singularity, Amiri confesses that as a survivor of the Holocaust, his intellect was impotent in the face of the horrors. In addition, Amiri's discussion of the attitude of the Jewish intellectual in Auschwitz has a strategic purpose when heeded closely. Upon close reading, it is plain that Amiri is positing that Auschwitz stripped Jewish intellectuals of their European intellectual cloak. To support his position, Amiri emphasizes the social role reversal of Jewish inmates in Auschwitz. Working-class Jewish craftsmen enjoy better treatment and less brutal working conditions. The demands of the infrastructure of Auschwitz favor craftsmen over intellectuals. It is noteworthy that the privilege is, I quote, a machinist, for example, was a privileged man since he could be used in the plain IG Farben factory and had the chance to work in a covered shop that was not exposed to the elements. The same holds true for the electrician, the plumber, the cabinet maker, or carpenter. A tailor or shoemaker perhaps had the good luck to hand in a room where work was done for the SS, end of quote. It is noteworthy that the privilege is determined by the material needs and requests of the camp which working class craftsmen were better fit to fulfill. As Amiri takes up the task to discuss the social dynamics of Auschwitz daily dealings, he is assuming a sociologist's gaze. With a critical eye, Amiri exposes the dynamics of social interactions among Jewish inmates and between inmates and the SS staff. It is in virtue of this process of autocritique and reflections about the sociological happenings of Auschwitz that Amiri perseveres in his intellectual ambitions despite the anti-intellectual structure of Auschwitz. Amiri then laments the plight of the higher profession Jewish inmates. As unskilled inmates, Jewish intellectuals were confined to menial labor. Amiri observes that both physical disposition and lack of manual skills rendered the intellectuals more vulnerable than their craftsmen counterpart. I quote, the situation was different for the inmate who had a higher profession. There awaited him the fate of the businessman who likewise belonged to the lumpen proletariat of the camp. That is, he was assigned to a labor detail where one dug dirt, laid cables, and transported sacks of cement or iron crossbeams. In the camp, he became an unskilled laborer who had to do his job in the open, which meant in most cases that his sentence was, the sentence was already passed on him. 
end of quote. The daily transactions of Auschwitz erected a dichotomy among the inmates. The higher profession Jewish inmates were transformed into the working class, while Jewish craftsmen became the privileged class. It is undeniable that for Ameri and other Jewish intellectuals, such role reversal was humbling. Ameri then observed the implication of this dichotomy upon social interaction among inmates. I quote, well, in the camp, there truly was a problem of communication between the intellectual and the majority of his comrades. It presented itself hourly in a real and painful way, end of quote. The issue of communication results from prior social differences and ensuing resentment of the reversal of social rule in Auschwitz. The inherent tension of the issue of communication is expressed in the painful way that the Jewish intelligentsia and the higher profession experienced it. After delineating the social alienation and resentfulness of the Jewish intelligentsia, Amory raises the core questions that have been driving his expose, I quote, but now I have arrived at the basic psychological and existential problems of camp life and at the situation of the intellectual in the narrower sense outlined at the start. Reduced to its most concise form, the question that arises is, did intellectual background and an and, and intellectual basic disposition help a camp prisoner in the decisive moments? Did they make survival easier for him? End of quote. Amory answers the above questions obliquely after con contrasting the intellectual infrastructure of Dachau, which he claims was designed for political prisoners with the anti-intellectual environment of Auschwitz, which was run by German criminals. His answers allow us to infer that the suffering of Jewish intellectual, intellectuals was unmediated. They confronted the horrors of Auschwitz without the illusion of privileged status that Jewish craftsmen enjoyed. Amiri states, I quote, in Auschwitz, however, the intellectual person was isolated, thrown back entirely upon himself. Thus, the problem of the confrontation of the intellect and horror appeared in a more radical form, and if the expression is permitted here in a pure form. In Auschwitz, the intellect was nothing more than itself, and there was no chance to apply it to a social structure, no matter how insufficient, no matter how concealed it may have been. Thus, the intellectual was alone, with his intellect, which was nothing other than pure content of consciousness, and there was no social reality that could support and confirm it." End of quote. This statement suggests that the social demise of the Jewish intelligentsia preceded their physical death. Unlike Jewish craftsmen, they were deprived of their social worthiness and relevance which brought the horrors of Auschwitz to bear upon them in an inescapable fashion. If pressed, Amiris claims suggests that the Jewish intellectual is shut in his consciousness in the midst of Auschwitz hours. Alienation 
from the Jewish craftsman and his social self led the intellectual to doubt the psychological relevance of his intellect as well. Beleaguered by physical impotence and unable to secure the recognition of fellow inmates, Amory observes that, I quote, So it was that in Auschwitz, everything intellectual gradually took on a doubly new form. On the one hand, psychologically, it became something completely unreal. And on the other hand, to the extent that one defines it in social terms, a kind of forbidden luxury, end of quote. At this juncture, another byproduct of Amir's rendition, which emerges inadvertently, is a discourse on alterity. <coughs> on the basis of the dichotomy, Jewish intellectual and privileged Jewish craftsmen in the camp The Jewish intellectual emerges as another. The Jewish intellectual stands as the impotent other toward both the Nazi regime and his fellow Jewish inmates. Amir's account disabuses us of the belief in social harmony among Jewish inmates in Auschwitz. The inmates' attitude toward their fellows and the daily practices of Auschwitz depended upon their social rank. Jewish intellectuals, craftsmen, businessmen, and middle-class professionals assimilated the daily practices of Auschwitz according to the ethos of their social station. Thank you. Furthermore, the appropriation of the Western intellectual canon by the German intelligentsia, in sympathy with Nazism, accentuates the alterity of Jewish intellectual vis-a-vis -vis German culture. Nazi-inclined German intellectuals and artists led German Jewish intellectuals to doubt their sense of belonging to the Western intellectual tradition. As German intellectuals and artists refigure the intellectual canon of European writers, and philosophers and shaped their art according to Nazis' ideals, Jewish-German intellectuals were compelled to acknowledge that they are outsiders. Nazi-bent intellectuals restricted Jewish intellectuals to their Jewishness in alienating them from the German Bildung. Ameri makes the following observation, I quote, a Jewish intellectual of German educational and cultural background a special set of problems in connection with the social function or non-function of the intellectual arose for the Jewish intellectual of German educational and cultural background. No, mat no matter to what he turned, it did not belong to him, but to the enemy. The spiritual and aesthetic heritage had passed over into the uncontested and uncontestable ownership of the enemy. He could not claim German culture as his possession because his claim found no sort of social justification. The intellect had to capitulate unconditionally in the face of reality, end of quote. At this juncture, it is apparent that Amory's musings transcend the boundaries of Auschwitz. If pressed, Amory's claims can be interpreted as denouncing the participation of the German intellectual establishment 
for corroborating the theoretical framework of the Holocaust. Amery is deeply troubled by the Nazis' appropriation of the German intellectual tradition for reinforcing the non-Europeanness of Jewish intellectuals. Such appropriation isolated and transformed them in the undesirable other to both the German Bildung and larger European intellectual tradition. The dichotomy intellectuals and privileged craftsmen is, is exacerbated by different religious and political views embraced by non-intellectuals and intellectual in, inmates as well. After confessing his deep-seated agnosticism, Amery reflects on the existential and spiritual vacuum of the Jewish intellectual in Auschwitz. The initial confession led to another difficult mission in which Amery states, I quote, Yet, I must confess that I felt and still feel great admiration for both my religiously and politically committed comrades. They survived better or died with more dignity than their irreligious or unpolitical intellectual comrades, who often were infinitely better educated and more practiced in exact thinking." End of quote. Amery's indirect confession that Jewish intellectuals were bereft of religious guidelines to cope with the house of Auschwitz is the logical byproduct of their exclusion from the European intellectual establishment. Put differently, in Auschwitz, Jewish intellectuals are intellectually, socially, and religiously homeless. Amory laments being forlorn by the German institutions which train him as an intellectual. The German Jewish intellectual is the product of German institutions, German intellectual tradition, German universities, and German humane cultural practices supply the intellectual capital of the German Jewish intellectual. In Auschwitz, Amir is claiming the German Jewish intellectual experience the rejection of the institutions which granted him such intellectual capital. Furthermore, in narrating his experience of religious and intellectual alienation, Amir makes an observation that needs to be elaborated. Amery refers to Hegelianism to account for the complete fulfillment of Hitler's Nazi's ideal, Nazi, uh, Hitler's ideal Nazi state. I quote, no matter what his thinking may have been on the outside, in distance here he became a Hegelian. In the metallic brilliance of its totality, the SS state appeared as a state in which the idea was becoming reality, end of quote. On this view, Nazism begriff, the concept, subjugates German state. Viewed from Amir's perspective, the thorough compliance of the German state with Nazism ideal practices is an illustration and fulfillment of Hegel's phenomenology of spirit and philosophy of right, for which the ideal state ought to comply thoroughly with a specific concept and system of rights. The Hegelian index of Western states has come to fruition in Nazism. As Hitler's ideal, the Nazi state thoroughly uprooted the German state. Ultimately, on the one hand, Amir is troubled by being thrown out of the German Bildung and the larger European intellectual tradition. Secondly, his, his agnosticism alienates him from the religious 
and Judaic ethos of the other inmates. Amiri is suggesting that in Auschwitz, Jewish intellectuals were the despised group. They are disdained for being duped into opting for the German Bildung establishment instead of Judaism and Jewish anti-German politics. Amiri makes the following claim under the guise of the disillusioned Jewish intellectual. I quote, both Christians and Marxists scorned us, scorned us skeptic humanist intellectuals. The former mildly, the latter impatiently and brusquely. There were hours in the camp when I asked myself in this corn was if this corn was not justified. End of quote. The second statement suggests Amiri's self-doubt and questioning the worth of the intellectuals in, op in oppressed and terrorized Jewish communities. Amiri summarized this angst by expressing his resentment at the believers. I quote, both of them transcended themselves and projected themselves into the future. They were windowless monads. They stood open, wide open unto a world that was not the world of Auschwitz, end of quote. The unavailability of an alternative religious realm and lack of political resistance made Auschwitz the sole and ultimate reality for the Jewish intellectuals who remained shut in themselves as windowless monads. Amiri's discussion of the religious beliefs of his fellow inmates may seem to be merely drawing a contrast between their attitude toward Auschwitz and his own. However, scrutiny reveals a deeper incentive underlies this discussion. In essence, via his account of religious belief, Amiri is bemoaning his confinement to an empty, individuality. Regarding beliefs, Amiri thinks that, I quote, what I failed to comprehend at that time still appears to me as a certainty. Whoever is in the broader sense a believing person, whether his belief be metaphysical or bound to concrete reality, transcends himself. He is not captive of his individuality. Rather, he is part of a spiritual continuity that is interrupted nowhere, not even in Auschwitz, end of quote. As a self-professed agnostic, Amiri confesses his inability to postulate religious beliefs as means to transcend Auschwitz's horrid reality. Amiri's painful confession of the unease of his agnosticism is further expressed in the following, I quote, I did not want to be one with my believing comrades, but I would have wished to be like them, unshakable, calm, and strong." End of quote. This statement shows Amiri's agnosticism limits him to the horrific practices of Auschwitz and prevents him from conceiving reality beyond. Amiri relies strictly on his intellect to deal with the harshness of Auschwitz, hence his religious defiance is paired with an incessant agony over the inability to transcend Auschwitz. His imprisonment is thus dual. He is imprisoned within his agnosticism, which is bound to Auschwitz in turn. It is noteworthy that the experience of religious and existential Fallenness is coherent with the logic of Amiri's account. 
At the initial phase of At The Mind's Limits, Amiri defines the intellectual as, I quote, a person who lives within what is a spiritual frame of reference in the wider sense. His realm of thought is an essentially humanistic one, that of the liberal arts. He has a well-developed aesthetic consciousness. By inclination and ability, he tends toward abstract trends of thought, end of quote. In this claim, Amery conflates the spiritual with both the humanistic and aesthetic realms. For him, abstract thinking about the liberal arts is the fulfillment of the intellectual spirituality. The reduction of the spiritual dimension of intellectual activities to aesthetic, materialist, and abstract events contribute to the alienation of the intellectual. Moreover, the inability to forge fellowship with other inmates in exclusion from the German establishments and institutions robbed the Jewish intellectuals of the means to, up, to uphold their social existence. The atrocities of Auschwitz disabused the Jewish intellectuals of their faith in the inherent humanness of the European Enlightenment. I am now moving on to discuss the intellectual's torment of dying. Amery shifts his discourse to account for the intellectual's mindset toward death in Auschwitz. He preludes his account in raising the following question, I quote, What, for example, was the attitude of the intellectual in Auschwitz toward death? This question, uh, end of quote, this question is in sequence with the prior phase of Amery's expose. After bringing to the fore the dual vacuum of intellectuals in Auschwitz and demonstrating that bereft of religious and political convictions, the skeptic humanist intellectual is reduced to a mere windowless monad, Amery is now laying out the mindset of this windowless monad toward death as the final event of concentration camps. First, Amery draws out the paradoxical role of death in Auschwitz, which may reasonably be extended to the experience of Jewish communities during the Holocaust as well. The paradox consists in that the experience of death for Amery permeates daily life in Auschwitz. Inmates encounter death incessantly as they engage in the activities of their daily life. The paradoxical event persists in the hovering of death over life in Auschwitz. Amery expresses poignantly the cohabitation of life and death in the following, I quote, I will assume it is known that the camp inmate did not live next door to, but in the same room with death. Death was omnipresent. The selections for the gas chambers took place at regular intervals. For a trifle, prisoners were hanged on the roll call grounds, and to the beat of light much music, their comrades had to fire past the bodies, eyes, eyes right, that dangle from the gallows. Prisoners died by the score at the work site, in the infirmary, in the bunker, within the block. I recall times when I climbed heedlessly over piled up corpses, and all of us were too weak or too indifferent even to drag the dead out of the barracks into the open. 
end of quote. The omnipresence of death numbed the inmates' natural reverence for death. Death stops being awe-inspiring and turns into a daily routine. The paradox consists in regularly encountering the end of life within the daily dealings of life itself. Moreover, Amir's numbness to a death is deepened by his agnosticism. From his agnostic perspective, dead bodies stand as mere material entities deprived of their liveliness. Amir's lack of religious convictions prevents him from revering dead bodies as sacred entities destined for transcendence. Amir's tent becomes more apparent in his contrast of the soldiers and the inmates' death, which he passes as paradigmatic for the intellectual's contemplation of death. Once extricated from the aesthetic adornment of death, which prevails in the in in the European uh, intellectual tradition, Jewish intellectuals are brought to regard death as an existential subtraction due to death. Aesthetic adornment consists of the poetic, philosophical, and literary renditions which romanticize death. Forsaking the aesthetic adornment of death was a byproduct of the Jewish intellectuals' realization of being expelled from the European intellectual tradition. Instead, Amir's account makes it plain that the Nazi regime's formal record of death supplied the substitute attitude of Jewish intellectuals toward death. I quote, The aesthetic view of death had revealed itself to the intellectual as part of an aesthetic mode of life, where the latter had been all but forgotten. The former was nothing but an elegant trifle. In the camp, no Tristan music accompanied death, only the roaring of the SS and the Capos. Since, in the social sense, the death of a human being was an occurrence that one merely registers in the so-called political section of the camp with the set phrase, subtraction due to death. It finally lost so much of its specific content that for the one expecting it, its aesthetic embellishment in a way became a brazen demand, and in regard to his comrades, an indecent one." End of quote. Devoid of his rootedness in the European intellectual and Judaic traditions, the Jewish intellectual is brought to regard the death of his fellows as mere subtraction. However, it is noteworthy that despite the ubiquity of death in the camp, the distinctiveness of the intellectual standpoint lies in its denial of transcendence. Thus, unable to transcend death, the intellectual inmate did not occupy himself with death, but with dying. The event of dying holds the Jewish intellectual captive because, unlike death, it is fit for contemplation. In denying transcendence, Amiri regards the dead as being merely entrapped in death. Dying encompasses the torment of death, which is deepened by Amiri's lack of religious belief. Dying, um, in contrast to the Jewish intellectual, for the religious inmate, Amiri observes, I quote, A beating or death in the gas chamber was the renewed sufferings of the Lord, or a natural political martyrdom, end of quote. Religious beliefs assisted the religious inmates in transcending the materiality of death 
and provided a bridge to martyrdom and union with God. At this juncture, Amery confesses the, the dehumanizing mutation of the Jewish intellectual into a windowless monad who stands as livestock in Auschwitz. The practices of Auschwitz daily life supplied the constituents of the torment of dying. These practices compelled the intellectual to substitute the metaphysical and aesthetic notion of death by the progressive event of dying. Amory is deploring the fact that in Auschwitz, the inmates are bound to an eternal present, which is susceptible to the interruption of death at any time. He presents a picturesque perspective upon reality viewed from a careless and withdrawn intellect. His account asserts the surreptitious priority of care in intellectual endeavors. Amory is conflicted, but nevertheless, he goes on to surrender to the meaninglessness and metaphysical void that the Jewish intellectual has to perform through by withdrawing from the world, the social and um, existential circumstances around him. Amir's account of the intellectual's attitudes in Auschwitz concludes with the provision of the infrastructure of the intellect. The inability of the intellect to refigure the world in an existentially meaningful way leads to two interesting outcomes. First, once divorced from the intellect, the world stands as a domineering and ominous system of practices. The characterization of reality as a series of inseparable physical occurrences suggests Amir's theatrical outlook on reality. I quote him, Howley, Howley, the physical world delivered proved that its insufferableness could be coped with only through means inherent in that world. In other words, nowhere else in the world did reality have as much effective power as in the camp. Nowhere else was reality so real. In no other place did the attempt to transcend it prove so hopeless and so shoddy, end of quote. In this statement, Amory posits reality as separate and distinct from the intellect. Auschwitz reality subsists without conceptualization. In forsaking its bond to intellectual and aesthetic ideals, the intellectual's attitude comes to resemble the Cartesian ego. Amory's account of the intellect's disposition Hence, the fact that it behaves like the Cartesian, I think. The intellectual's theatrical and withdrawn standpoint toward reality as a distinct set of practices separated from his intellect suggests some skepticism on his part, at least. In assuming such attitude, Amery performs a separation of mind from body broadly construed. Amir's withdrawals from reality as a system of practices and Western ideals is an illustration of Cartesian doubt. He asserts vehemently that, I quote, existence as such to top it off became definitively totally abstract and thus empty concept, end of quote. 
Like Descartes, Amery isolates all existence to reinforce the bare intellect, the equivalent of Descartes' cogito. Also, the Jewish intellectual skeptic posturing toward prevailing Western ideals such as beauty, knowledge, and awe-inspiring death while being indifferent toward the material environment of Auschwitz is reminiscent of Descartes' radical doubt, which begins with the wax candle and expands to everything in order to deduce the certainty of the I think. Indeed, Amory's description of the intellectual's auto-destruction by means of methodical doubting bears simil bear similarity to Cartesian language, I quote him, thus, <coughs> absolute intellectual tolerance and the methodical doubting of the intellectual became factors in his auto-destruction, end of quote. It is reasonable to read methodical doubting as an allusion to Descartes' endeavor in his meditation to deduce the cogito. Similarly, as the intellect withdraws and turns skeptical towards its usual sensory stimuli, it emerges out of the house of Auschwitz as a logical framework. Just as the Cartesian, I think, However, the key difference between Descartes and Amery's procedures consists in the fact that the former indulges willfully in skepticism as an epistemological experiment, whereas the latter in Amery is compelled to question and withdraw from sensory stimuli by the fact that, to quote Amery, nowhere else in the world did reality have as much effective power as in the camp. In no other place did the attempt to transcend it prove so hopeless and so shoddy, end of quote. The intellect reaches the skeptic standpoint of the I think in Auschwitz out of the barbarity and atrocities of the daily practices. Besides, while the evil genius that Descartes posit is hypothetical, for Amery, such evil is a routine dimension of daily practices in Auschwitz. Amery then emphasizes the restlessness of thinking despite its dissociation from prevailing European traditional ideals. I quote, For it was not the case that the intellectual, if he had not, <coughs> if, um, if he had not already been destroyed physically, had now become unintellectual or, or incapable of thinking. On the contrary, only rarely did thinking grant itself a respite, but it nullified itself when at almost every step it ran its, into its uncrossable borders. The axis of its traditional forms of reference then shattered. Beauty, that was an illusion. Knowledge, that turned out to be a game with ideas. Death veiled itself in all its inscrutability, end of quote. This claim asserts the status of the intellect as a logical framework, which is forced to contemplate its bareness, completely dissociated from classic philosophical ideals. However, the realization of the bareness of the intellect has its virtues. Amery confesses that, I quote, we emerge 
from the camp, stripped, robbed, emptied out, disoriented. And it was a long time before we were able to learn the ordinary language of freedom, end of quote. Auschwitz is an existential purge for its survivors. It erects a bridge between survivors and their environment. Post-Auschwitz, the Jewish intellectual navigates his environment as a mere witness of reality, just, uh, just as the Cartesian cogito gradually restores itself within the, co the causal order after deducting its logical framework. The intellect gradually relinquishes its indifference and skepticism toward its environment. Interestingly, the intellect's engagement with the causal structure of its environment post-Auschwitz produces what may be called Amiri's theory of the human condition and disillusionment about intellectual hubris. Amiri claims, I quote, for we brought with us the certainty that remains ever unshakable, that for the greatest part the intellect is a ludus, and that we are nothing more or better said. Before we entered the camp, we were nothing more than hominis ludentis. With that, we lost a good deal of arrogance, of metaphysical conceit, but also quite a bit of our naive joy in the intellect and what we falsely imagined was the sense of life." End of quote. In this statement, Amory thinks of the human condition as a highly structured series of games which yield a conditioned player. The intellect stands as the requisite tool to undergo social conditioning and to participate in those high structured games. In concluding, to emphasize this theory, Amory ref references Sartre, who reaches a similar conclusion. I quote Amory. In his newest book, The Words, Jean-Paul Sartre said at one point that it took him 30 years to rid himself of traditional philosophical idealism. I can guarantee that it did not take us as long. Mostly a few weeks in camp sufficed to bring about this philosophical disillusionment for which other perhaps infinitely more, more gifted and penetrating minds must struggle a lifetime. Amery's key observation is that Auschwitz horrors have their own philosophical worthiness. For Amery, Auschwitz's barbarity did not force the intellect into nihilism. It extricates the intellect of its idealist dependency. The intellect emerges as a playful, logical framework. Thank you.